You know what life has? Life has riddles, riddle, problems. Life has many mysteries, enigmas, and it has these difficulties, we call them problems. And I used to think that as I read the book of Proverbs and as I read Proverbs and it talks about the fact that the benefits of Proverbs are to increase your wisdom if, when you begin chapter one of the book of Proverbs and it, it's going to give it the wisdom to you no matter what age you're at. And then I think it's in verses five or six it talks about how Proverbs are there for the enigmas, basically the riddles of life. And I used to think as you go through life that these riddles and these problems are going to be very similar to like when I do a crossword puzzle in the morning, just like a part of my day. I don't know about you guys all know, I do a crossword puzzle, I do a jumble almost every day. I, do, I wanna keep my mind going. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that all of life is a problem. All of life constantly is filled with jigsaw puzzles. And you all need, we all need wisdom for dealing with the idea of how we're gonna face today's enigma. And I like the word enigma, it's a funny word, it's like talking about the twisted way that life is and the way things get all jumbled up. And then you gotta solve it, you gotta figure it out. And when you do, and you do it rightly, there's like this sense of an aha, an aha moment when you get it. And this idea of, I got it, I figured out my way through the puzzle, I figured out my way through this naughty situation. There's a sense of great joy, and you're put in a very good position when you have that aha moment. And as I was getting ready for this message, I didn't realize that this concept of an aha moment has almost become like a, a, a catchphrase for like the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, Oprah Winfrey had a television show that was in the mornings for a long time, and she, I guess she really popularized this concept of aha, an aha moment. And, and the, really, the reason is that we need these aha moments is because I realize as I've looked back through life, when I'm growing up in my family, it's tough to navigate. You know, I've grown up in a family where my parents aren't saved and brothers aren't saved and relatives aren't saved and a lot of family dynamics that are a lot of problems. And I'm sure you have those too. And, and then I started thinking about it as I grew up and navigating through friendships, through school, through dating, then getting married, then raising children. All of these are hard, naughty, difficult riddles and problems. How am I going to solve them? How am I going to grasp really what's going on in life and how do I fit in? How do I make my job work? And I'm sure some of you are coming to this realization as you get older in life, it's like, wow, life is filled with problems. And the older you get and the more you advance, you sometimes wish that these problems could all be behind you, but the reality of it is, and we'll see today, that it's not ever going to happen. If you ever think that you're coming to a place in your life where you're not gonna have to deal with problems, here's a little aha, you're not. And so 
I've realized the bigger the puzzle, the bigger the problem, the bigger the riddle, the bigger the aha. Now, in trying to illustrate this today, I thought to myself, there's a lot of illustrations that are in the Bible I'd like to give you. And I picked one out that I'm hoping that you'll see how it connects. And I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you would open later your Bibles to First and Second Kings, there's a situation there that really changed the entire course of history as you know it. And the entire course of history was sent on a different direction in a positive way when King Solomon became king of Israel. And yet it almost didn't happen except for an aha moment. And the idea is, is you've got to realize much of Israel was developed under Solomon. Solomon is going to become king around 970 BC. His father David has really started to advance the country after Saul was king. But David is dying when you come to first and second kings. And Solomon is going to come and be given wisdom by God that is going to help him rule the world. Israel becomes the world power. And if you can go to Israel today, you will still see buildings and things that are throughout all of Israel that are all because Solomon comes on the scene. And yet it almost didn't happen. Why not? What was the aha moment? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 1, in 1 Kings chapter 1, we learn that David is dying. And because he is sick, the people come up with this great idea that they're going to get him a nurse. And they're going to get him a nurse that is a beautiful woman. Now, the idea is, is that they don't have heating blankets. She's going to sleep with him. Now, I don't think my wife would ever go for this. <laughs> but they find this woman. Her name is Abishag. She's a from this area called the Shunammite. She's a Shunammite woman. And it's very clear that this woman is absolutely gorgeous. She's beautiful. The scriptures emphasize it. And also, and you read 1 Kings chapter 1, that they never have relationships, a relationship, a sexual relationship. But people know that David is dying. David's got many children. And... In this chapter, we learned that there is a brother of Solomon who's positioning himself. But when we come to chapter 2, David dies, and what happens is Solomon is made king. And you think at this point, this is great. We all know where everything plays out with Solomon being this great king, that we're all excited to see Solomon be king. But then all of a sudden, this brother, Adonijah, comes to Solomon's mother. Now, Adonijah is a brother from another mother. Ah, look, there you go. That's, that's me being hip and slang, okay? All right? But the idea there is that he comes to Solomon's mother, and he says, hey, go to my brother and ask him if I can marry the Shunammite woman. The nurse, can I, can I marry the nurse? They've never had a sexual relationship. And so the idea is 
that can I have this woman to be my wife? And Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, says, okay, I'll go. I'll go ask. And at this point, you think, well, what's the big deal? She goes, she asks Solomon. And what is Solomon's response? Solomon doesn't just say, oh, no, this is only this woman I want her. Solomon says, aha, kill my brother. Now, we can read that story, we can gloss over it, and we can keep on going, and he executes Adonijah. Now, listen to me. You kill somebody, that's pretty significant. You have somebody executed, that's pretty significant. You have your brother executed. That's pretty significant. It's funny that we never have a passage of scripture that talks about the incredible trauma that had to be over Solomon. In all seriousness, if I had to kill my brother, I'd be traumatized. I would be traumatized for life. I would not like that. I would not want to kill my brother. That is such a radical step. And yet, when you read the scripture, there isn't an explicit explanation He just asked if he could marry this woman. And he says, aha, no, kill my brother. Kill my brother. And he gets executed and all these other people get executed. And we all have to be leaving with the idea of he had this aha moment and he figured it out. He figured it out that his brother was doing this as a coup. Maybe the world at this point doesn't know that that, so, that David has not had relationships with this woman, and hence they could think that she was part of his concubine, part of the marriage um, group that David had. And, and maybe the Adonijah thought, if I can get people to think that I've been given part of my father's harem, that they would think me as the king and I could supplant my brother. That has to be it. But the bottom line is that it's an aha moment. He, he pieces it together. Now, where is this going for our study today is because, listen, what can seem just like an ordinary request, an ordinary situation, and you're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 20, a passage that I am going to tell you right now. You are privileged. I'm going to tell you right now. You are privileged to be here on this Sunday morning because we're going to read a text of scripture and we're going to look at it And I want you to have a series of aha moments. Because as we come to chapter 20, we're going to understand the future millennial kingdom and its impact on today. And you think, that's a long title. But I'm going to tell you that this is a text of scripture that is perhaps one of the top significant scriptures in all the Bible. This is a text of scripture that deals with the millennial kingdom. Millennial means a thousand. It's a thousand year reign. And it is a passage of scripture that I know today that most churches in America do not believe it deals with a a literal thousand years, but I believe it does. As we've been going through the book of Revelation and we come to this is the section that we're at, we are going to look at a section of scripture that's going to talk about this. And the idea is, is that when we come to understand it, I'm hoping you have an aha moment that is mind-boggling, that causes you, now listen to this, this is not hyperbole, that you understand God in a far greater way than the average Christian. You're gonna understand something today that puts you 
in a sense where you're going to know something insightful that will put you in a position over most churches today, most Christians today. If you pay attention, you follow along, you're going to have an aha moment. I'm guaranteeing it. So pay attention. Watch what happens. Now, the context is that we've been studying the book of Revelation. If you're visiting, we've been going through this book that, again, even this past two weeks, I've been told churches won't teach it. A guy came to me and said, my church won't teach this because it's too confusing. It's not confusing. We've worked through it. But the book of Revelation, if you're unfamiliar, is a book where God is bringing judgment upon the world. He's trying to wake people up. He's trying to get people to come to the realization that I'm not playing games. It's like when you come and you say to your child, hey, you're 18, you're 20, you're 25. It's time for you to move out of my house because you got, it's time to grow up. But it's even more than that. It's more than when you, it's when you come and you say to somebody, somehow you're going to have to be penalized. There's significant ramifications. We've been trying to get you to do something. You won't do it. And you have to suffer these consequences now. The book of Revelation goes through a series of judgments, seal judgments, one third, fourth of the world dies. Trumpet judgments, one third of the world dies. And now we've just seen the bull judgments were in the battle of Armageddon. Every unbeliever in the world dies. So that's through chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, all work together. Evil is ended. Chapter 19, with the return of Christ, unfolds with a fourfold hallelujah goes into the battle of Armageddon where God has this wedding feast where every unbeliever is food for birds. And now we're ready to go and we come to chapter 20, verse 1, and he says this, which is kind of startling. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was of the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's the first time in this passage that a thousand years is going to be referenced. It's going to be referenced six times. Verse 3, And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, all we're going to do, in one sense, is just this. We're just going to go over these events. And, and, and the, the, what we're going to do over the next two, three weeks is put this all together, and you'll see how it all comes together. But these are the events that you need to know. That's what we're doing today. And the very first one is that, you see, Satan is bound only temporarily during the thousand years. Now, this thousand years, as I said, I believe is the millennial kingdom. I believe, and we're going to talk about this more, but I want to keep reiterating it, is that I believe this is the time when God is blessing the nation of Israel. God is bringing all the promises that he gave to Israel. God is allowing people to rule and reign on earth that have been faithful to him. We're going to talk more about that. But this is an incredible time, and most people, most churches today do not believe this is coming. This is unfathomable that they don't think this is coming, but it's very clear in the scriptures. We're not twisting it. We're not trying to pull things out. 
This is something that is going to happen, the thousand-year reign. Now, there's a sense here where there should be like an aha moment in the sense you say, wait a second, shouldn't eternity start at this point? And a lot of people think it is, and this is just, uh, you know, they, they turn it on its head, and we'll talk more about how they turn it on. But there is a sense where we, we come and we say, wait a second, all right? Um, this is a very different world. And we begin in verse 1, and it says, then I saw an angel. And I can tell you right now, we don't know which angel this is. Some people think Gabriel, some people Michael. It doesn't matter. If God wanted us to know, he would know. It just It's an angel. It's got to be a powerful angel. And he's coming down from heaven. So we're coming to earth. And the idea is, is that he's holding this key, and it's a great chain. So he's got two things. He's got a key and his chain. And some people will know this is all symbolic. I think it's a literal spiritual key. I believe it's a literal spiritual chain because John can see it. So... However, it's going to operate, it's going to operate. We're not told how it actually opens up a lock and how it actually binds Satan, as we're going to see. But it's important that you just recognize these facts. And at this point, you're going to say, wait a second, I thought, I thought eternity should start. But no, we're dealing with something that's really interesting. We're going to watch this thing play out. And we see this angel comes down, and he's got the abyss key. Now, for those who've been studying through the book of Revelation, this is something that we've talked about before. This is a place that it's a prison for demons. And it's not a good prison. Now, in one sense, if I'm doing an aha moment, I'm going to say to myself, wait a second, why aren't we going to be dealing with hell here, the lake of fire? We're not. Why are we dealing with this? We're dealing with the abyss. And the abyss is this prison that is going to be a holding place for Satan. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done prison ministry. I have. I've gone to juvenile halls. I've gone to Lake County Jail. I have gone to high security prisons. And I don't like going into prisons. There's a, there's a sense, even when I'm a free person, when you're in a prison, there's a sense where you're locked up and there's a restriction. And this is a prison we're going to talk a little bit more about that is horrific. But when we come to verse 2, and it says, and he laid hold of what? He laid hold of the dragon. He laid hold of the serpent of old, who is of the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. He binds him for a thousand years. Now, isn't it interesting, as you're paying attention, you're watching this, why does he come up with four names? I believe he wants to be really complete. Look at verse 2. He lays hold of the dragon. What is a dragon? A dragon is a fierce animal. It's not Puff the Magic Dragon. When I was a kid, that was always something I wanted. I always wanted to watch Puff the Magic Dragon. Is Barney? Barney's a dragon, right? Barney's a dragon. Those are good dragons, but this isn't a good dragon. This is something that, that I think historically there might have been what we perceive they call dinosaurs that were breathing fire. And, and the imagery, why is Satan called a dragon, is because he's a destructive animal. He's a beast. And I think of Psalm 73 when the psalmist talks about going nuts and he acted like a beast and was ready to just do all kinds of crazy things. That's the, the epitome of what a dragon is. Satan is a vicious animal, people, and he destroys people's lives. That's what a dragon does. 
And then we're given the name of the serpent of old because it takes us back to the book of Genesis. It takes us back to the serpent that was deceiving Adam and Eve. And it is the animal that got cursed. And if I could just digress for a second, you know, I continually see pictures of the temptation of Adam and Eve. And people paint it, and they, all, they always paint it incorrectly. If any of you are painters, one day somebody will paint this the right way. Because we know, based upon Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that Satan was the most beautiful creature ever. And I believe when he's in the Garden of Eden, he's gorgeous. And it's not until he's cursed that he becomes one who has to go on his belly. Satan is deceptive, and it's often missed because he was and is the serpent of old. And he is someone that is now cursed, and I believe it's in something where God curses Satan, so it's a twisted image. And I've shared this before, and I even went and found it, that there was um, a psychologist, and his name was David C. Wilson in 1979, I've mentioned this before, who did a study where he's out west and in, in the long road, and he took a rubber snake, and he put it in the middle of the road, and as people were driving down the road, they could see this snake from a distance, and they would do whatever they could to run over that snake. And then he put a turtle, big turtle, again, rubber turtle, so they wouldn't... And, and as people saw the turtle from a distance, they would do whatever they can to avoid it. And then he made some conclusions, but you and I know the right conclusion. Inherently, there is something that God has put in all humans that there is a representation with the snake, the serpent, that there is a despising because we understand what he has done and how horrible he is. Now, again, you've got to understand, God is putting all of this here so that you are... Something is being built, so facts are being given, so that you will have this aha moment, so that you catch this. So then he gets the name devil. Why devil? Because a devil is a slanderer. Why Satan? Because he is an adversary, and we all should understand that he is this, this adversary. And then you see, again, like I said, there's, he's bound. He's, he's captured for a thousand years. And... I believe, as I've stated before, this is a literal thousand years. As I stated on Palm Sunday, every time a number is used in Scripture, a number is used in Scripture, that number is a literal number. So seven churches, seven judgments, seven, seven, seven. And the idea is is that when we look at the fact that this is 1,000 years, this is the first and only time in a section of scripture that this 1,000 is being mentioned. And the idea is, is that this is a 1,000 year kingdom, 1,000 year kingdom, and verse three, he throws him into the abyss. He throws him into this prison and that it should be sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. And you say, whoa, what nations? I thought we were in eternity. I thought every unbeliever was killed. I didn't think there's going to be any division. I thought we were all going to be one big people. And the answer is no, in the sense that there are still going to be nations. The people who are saved at the end of the tribulation are going to still go and create nations. And, and this is where you got to start thinking, well, wait a second, what is going on? And then when you come to verse 3 at the end, until the thousand years were, were, were completed... 
And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, I just read that. You can read that. You've read it maybe many times. How many of you have ever stopped at that point and said, wait a second. This is one of the most offensive pieces of scripture I've ever read. What are you talking about, Mike? Well, let me give you an illustration. In 1980, well, I'll digress. On February 25th, 1963, Joseph Edward Duncan was born in Tacoma, Washington. I don't know if any of you know who he is, but Joseph Edward Duncan was one of America's most horrific serial killers ever. This man, if I told you what he did to little children, would gross you out. If I told you what he did to women, it would gross you out. They captured him and they put him to prison and they gave him a sentence for 20 years. Good, we captured him, but then they let him go. After 14 years, they let this man go. And do you think he, st- he stopped killing and raping and malib- or, or, and we're gonna talk more about that, but the answer is no. And if anyone would know this series, if you go back and you look at the facts of this, it is abhorrent. Why in the world did the government do this? Who had the mindset to let Joseph Edward Duncan go? And if your children were one of the children that he will molest after he's released, if he is one of your children, your daughter, your son, your father, your mother, your uncle, whoever, your friend got murdered, you come back and you say to yourself, who, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Why would you let this man go? And there's gotta be an inside an anger that you've gotta say, why would you let this man go? This was not an ordinary man. This was not just a, a, a situation in which one end of, you know, he had done one little thing and it was like a mistake and blah, blah, blah. This man was a serial killer. You let him go. And, and I think inside you, there's a rage. There's a, an incredible, like, righteous anger. How many of you just read verse three and said, what in the world did you just do, God? We're not supposed to be angry at God, are we? We're not supposed to shake our fist at God because God is good. God is just. But if you don't have the aha moment right here, then you don't understand all of life and all of scripture. That's why I said at the beginning, this is so important because if you don't understand right here, right now, what just happened, you're gonna live your Christianity without an understanding of the big picture and what this is all about. You understand how important this is? This is so critical. If I have to make application, there's two things. We're gonna, number one is this has to be solved. You, we're gonna solve it. We're gonna work to solve it, but you've got to solve this because there has to be a way we reconcile it. Why in the world would God finally capture the devil, the serpent, the Satan, the dragon, and 
You got him. Why would you ever let him go? He's a deceiver. He has been the one that has caused people to go into all kinds of sin, all kinds of problems. You read this morning the newspaper about this crime and that crime and this thing that has happened, and you can look through your entire life and all the bad and that has happened. And it's because of this Satan. And God, you've got him and you let him go? Where's the difference between the anger towards those who let Joseph Edward Duncan go and what God has just done? And if you don't get this, you're not gonna understand life. It's that significant. Now, this is where I struggled in putting this message together. When you come now to this section here, we're gonna look at the structure of society because as I I wish in verse 3.2 or something that I would get an explanation, but I don't. It's just all of a sudden he goes into the structure. He goes into the idea of what happens with the society. So just as a digression here, I said the very first thing as application is we've got to figure out what in the world's happened. Number two, because Satan is not bound today, if I'm going to make a second application, because I don't want to forget this, I want you guys to realize the Bible tells us today that Satan roams around the world like a roaring lion. Satan is alive and active, and he is out there, and he's got a, a, a hierarchy of demons, and he's out there to to work havoc in this world. And and if I told you that right now there's a serial killer that's been let loose and he's your next door neighbor, what would you do? What would you say? You'd say, wait a second, I gotta be on guard. Not only do I have to watch everywhere where my kids go, I've gotta watch where I go. And that's exactly the application I'm trying to get you to see because Satan is not bound now. Satan incredibly is free, which is, again, part of the interesting dynamic of us trying to figure out where the world is. So as we come to verse 4, let me just read. It says, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast in the image and had not received the mark on the forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed then this is the first resurrection and we're going to talk about this the idea of the first resurrection is not just it's a it's a description it's not just always the sequence it's the description of the people who get resurrected glorified bodies And we'll talk more about that in upcoming weeks because there's a second resurrection and those are all the people who end up in hell. And there are people within the first resurrection that are coming at different times, you hear at different times, but they're all within the first type of resurrection. So verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, this is where we learn about the second death This is the first time this is going to appear. It's going to appear one more time. The idea that now we realize there is physical death and there is a spiritual death. And the spiritual death is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. It's called the second death. And so over these, the second death has no power. 
but they will be the priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Again, a thousand years, a thousand years. Remember, six times it's going to be mentioned. So what I, what I thought, what I need to get you to understand, just we're going to go into this more, but here's the big picture. What's the structure? The structure is this section is about how we as believers rule over the world. We live in this world. We, everyone who's a believer this morning will be in this world. Every one of us who's a Christian will be in this world. There's going to be the resurrected Old Testament saints. David, Moses will be there. There will be people who live through the tribulation in non-glorified bodies. They will be there. That's fascinating to, that this is the way the structure is going to be. And I thought I, if I went through this, all of a sudden you lose the path and understanding of what's happening here through this situation with Satan. So let's not, let me just take a few more moments and just go through this as we, we're going to pick up the structure next week, which is phenomenal to understand. But let's understand this, Satan's release, attack, and final elimination. That's what verses 7 through 10 go in. And all of a sudden you see, when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison. And he uses the word prison, and, and, and prisons aren't good. And you know, typically you think in a prison that rehabilitation has taken place. That's, that's the mindset. When I visited prisons, they always have some aspect of rehabilitation. These are people that we're trying to rehabilitate, get them to be better in society. Even if we're not going to let them ever out, there's still some rehabilitation that's taking place. Satan's in prison, and he's never going to be rehabilitated. So you come, and you look at verse 8, and it says, And he will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That is a name for God's enemies. We're going to tie it back to Ezekiel. But I used to think that it was the specific same ones. But I think now, as I studied this week, I think that's just the name for God's enemies. You've got to get the idea here that the nations now, four corners of the earth, this is an absolute, complete picture of the world. And they, they, they are on the four corners to gather them together for the war and say, what war? We've just went through and... The idea that we're going to study with the millennial kingdom is it's a thousand years where if someone dies at the age of 100, we've talked about this in the past, they're thought to be accursed. Listen, people, there are no tanks, there are no guns, there are no ballistic missiles, there are no nuclear bombs. Everything that from this old age is gone. And I think to myself, do I have an aha moment? What in the world are these people coming to make war with? And then you come to the idea that the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And, and when you look at passages from the Old Testament of what the kingdom is going to be like, there's no more disease. There's no one being murdered. We're going to have a thousand years of populating the earth without anything stopping the advancement of the world. People, and it's critical at this point, you have to understand, you just have to realize there are billions of people. Some people speculate there are 20 billion people on the earth at this time. 20 billion. And if you miss this, then you're going to even miss more what's coming. And the number of people who have been, who are turning, I believe for the last 1,000 years as they've been born, somehow as Jesus is ruling and reigning with an iron fist, inside them, they have learned how not to overtly sin, but inside them, they are angry and angry and angry, and Satan is released, and they somehow get communicated with him, and he ends up saying, 
you know, you have suffered enough. And maybe some of you are in a Christian home and that's exactly how you feel. My parents have oppressed me, my friend, you know, my father, my mother, you know, I've, I've got these people, coworkers I live with and they're Christians and they just constantly tell me about righteousness and it's just, I've learned how to play the game, I learned how to give the names and inside though, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, but I can play the game and I know that. And the reality of it is, is that's what these people are. And now, somehow, they have come and heard a message from Satan who's been released. And if you have ever doubted the power of Satan, you have to look at verse 8 and say, you've got to be kidding me. These people will have heard from us because you and I will be there. They will have heard about the tribulation. They will have heard about the battle of Armageddon. They will hear about how everyone gathered in the valley of Megiddo to kill Jesus, and he killed them instantly. And yet they will think, nope, we can win. This time we can win. This time I can do it. This time we can kill Jesus. Yes, we can kill Jesus. It makes sense to me. I'm going to go kill Jesus. And if you don't see that, that's exactly what's happened. And this is why you should be terrified of sin. Because sin is so deceptive. There has to be an aha moment. And it, it come up on the broad plane of the earth. And we're going to watch this battle play out because it's going to be so fascinating. This goes this way and this tanks are moved here. No, look at verse 9. And they came upon the, the broad plane of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which for time's sake is Jerusalem. And fire comes down. And devours them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how we know hell is not just annihilation. They come down and, and, and they think they're gonna win. And then it's over. Now, because I set this up. Maybe you're thinking of this, but you read this verse from the past. Have you ever just thought that you read a verse where billions of people have just died? Billions of people have just died. There has to be a sense of like pain there. Have you ever thought of the fact that God also is a person and what has just happened? He has thrown Satan into the lake of fire. Some of you are parents and you have made children. You look at your children and they're pictures of you and in the sense you have this great accomplishment. God made Satan. God made Satan as the most perfect thing he ever made. Maybe it isn't children that you made. Maybe you've carved something, painted something, and it's the best thing you ever did. Could you imagine if everybody looked and said, oh my goodness, you did that? You made that? Do you ever piece this together? Listen, God made Satan. We know from the book of Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Satan is the greatest thing that's ever been made. Do you not think that God stood back and said, this is wonderful? Do you know how much it had to hurt God to have made something as incredible as Satan and for that being to turn on God? How that had to hurt? That this creature that is so great, God put everything in it. Remember, Jesus isn't created. Satan is the greatest thing 
created, but I know we, and along the lines of humans were made lower than the angels. We just read that in Psalm 8. But the idea of Satan is this incredible being. And when I come to the end of verse 10, there is no hallelujah. And it's bothered me because I'm thinking to myself, this should be one of the greatest points in all of human history. Why isn't there this incredible, overjoyous, hey, it's done? We, we saw it in Revelation 19, but we don't see it here. I mean, this is everything that we've ever wanted. We no longer want evil. We no longer want a Satan. But there's got to be a sense where we're putting this together and we're saying, aha. Now, let's take it back. Joseph Duncan, he gets released. And he kills. And if you ever want to do a study and you want to be grossed out, he, he goes on another murder spree. And the murder spree that he does is horrific. And, and, and it's so horrendous that this time they execute him. And you say, finally, justice is done. But why in the world was he ever let go? So what do we do with this? Because if I'm looking at this and I'm challenging myself and I'm saying to myself, why, God, why is it now you finally eliminate? What are you doing I think that we have to come to this understanding that God is doing something pretty significant that isn't isn't simply in the scriptures with one verse, but it's a riddle, it's a puzzle. And like Solomon figured it out, you need to figure it out. And if you don't figure this out, and what that is, is that God is putting on a grand demonstration. That God is showing us that no matter what, apart from his goodness, there is no goodness. And God has let a thousand years go with no sin, overt sin. Unsaved people, we're going to study, there's going to be sacrifices in this time. But unsaved people are living in a utopia, but when it's all said and done they will turn on God because the heart is not changed. And God wants us to see that. And what you need to understand today, this has application for today because you are living in a world where God is trying to show us apart from his goodness, there is no goodness. And unless you are relying on God, you are susceptible to sin. And and God is showing us that no matter where we are in life, We are never coming to a place as long as this event has happened. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. We will never have peace. So when you're a child, you're learning there is no goodness apart from from God. As you're an adult, there is no goodness apart from God. There is no goodness apart from God as you get older. I am telling you that you need to grasp this and understand that something big is going on. This isn't just a picture of how salvation works. It is us understanding how important it is to have a relationship with God always. And sin will never stop until Satan is finally released. But God is doing something even in the church age today. Whereas God is allowing people to have the Holy Spirit and people should be running to be here at church. But we come on a Sunday morning and it's the week after Easter and we've got pews left and right open. And the reality of it is it just isn't important to people. And the reality of it is, is Satan is still alive and roaming around like a roaming lion, and he's seeking to devour. So we're going to come back, and we're going to understand this more, but 
you start to ponder this and understand this. Why did God let him go? God is not evil like a wicked governmental leader who's got his head in the sand and let Joseph Duncan out just because he wanted to be a liberal guy that just said, let the guy go. No, God has a purpose. And unless you grasp this purpose, you're not going to have that aha moment where you begin to understand what God is doing. And one of the benefits of understanding what God is doing is how dependent you need to be upon him. Because if you live your life without God's goodness that comes today through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit working, you are always going to be in trouble. And the more you live independent and you think that you're, you're going to be able to live without God's goodness and relying upon God, you're going to find nothing but the impacts of deception and bad things happening to you. And so my challenge to you is will you discern in this world and the world to come, this future millennial kingdom, that you just read 10 verses and maybe you would have thought nothing of it, that you'll have this aha moment and you'll begin to piece it together. Make sure that you're there. We'll talk about it next week. Make sure that you have resources there because storing up your treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for putting this in scripture that all of a sudden allows us to understand there's something going on that's just not ordinary, something that we just don't grasp. Father, it was us. We would never let Satan go. But you did for a purpose and a reason. And the people who grasp this and understand it will have wisdom. They will have that aha moment where they need to understand something radical. They're not going to be like Solomon and have to kill a brother, but they're going to have to understand how critical it is to act in an appropriate way. Help us, God, to be people who do just that. Help the person who has been asleep this last hour, has not been paying attention, to maybe somehow wake up. And God, I pray for the person that's unsaved to have a heart that would see the importance of understanding that this world is divided you're either on god's team or you're on satan's team and satan's team never wins as much as people think that they can live independent of god i pray god that the person who's unsafe today will take away that they will always be losers if they're on satan's team no one can live independent from god may we all come to that realization in the way we live as christians but for the unbeliever today i pray that there's a sense where they'll wake up and come to faith in Jesus Christ before it's too late because the second death is coming for all who do not believe. Thank God for the first resurrection that's through Jesus Christ. Amen.